Matthew chapter 2 says, After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived unexpectedly in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born King of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. And Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, because out of you will come a leader who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too may go and worship him. After hearing the king, they went on their way, and there it was, the star that they had seen in the east. It led them until it stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed beyond measure. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. Now this is another familiar passage that we look at often during the Advent season. Advent is that time between Christmas and Thanksgiving, uh, you know, where it's a time of waiting, a time of anticipation. Uh, at the time of the wise men here, a little over 2,000 years ago, at the time that the wise men had come, uh, they, they were waiting for the appearance of the Messiah. They were waiting for his appearance to come, first of all. And, and now, you know, this period of waiting that we're in now, as we look into celebrating his birth, what we are doing, we are waiting for the return of the Messiah is what we're looking for. Uh, this morning, I was reading in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 9, um, well, the last two verses in that, in that chapter, uh, you know, the, the, they're both a bit familiar. It says, and just as it is appointed for people once to die, and, then, and after this judgment, then it goes on, and, and here's, here's the, the picture of what we're waiting for now. It says, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to bear the sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Just as it is sure that, that all people will die, and we, and we know that. We say that, and we say it kind of in a trite manner because we're used to it. We're, you know, to the reality that people die. We, know, we are used to that reality of, of that happening. And he says, just as sure as that is, you have that surety that the Messiah is going to come again, that Jesus is going to return. So when we think of Advent, and it has that twofold, that twofold picture for us, it is that time of waiting. We look back at, at the waiting that they did then, as we, as we just read here in, you know, in, in Scripture, and we also are looking forward to the coming again, that anticipation, that, that waiting that's there. Now, not to mess up your manger scene at home, Maybe just a little bit, um, you know, but uh, I mentioned to you last week that the manger is actually the feeding trough. It's not that structure. We talk about the manger and look at it as as that structure that's stable. Were they in a stable? Were they in a cave? You know, there's a lot of debate about that. You know what? It doesn't matter. Um, you know, what happened there, you know, is, is that, you know, that the manger is that that feeding trough. 
Um, you know, and so the, the, they were looking for a child in a feeding trough. I mean, think about about that. I mean, in a sense, that's what they said to that's what the angels said to the shepherds. We looked. We started with that passage last week, and you know, go look for this kid in a feeding trough. It is, that would be. A fairly uh, unique, uh, you know, if they said, just go look for a newborn baby. Which one? Well, you see, here, well, let me point it out to you in that feeding trough. Well, so the, the little dust up for you this week, um, it seems very clear in Scripture, the wise men weren't at that part. They were not at the part where Jesus was in the manger, where Jesus was in the feeding trough. You know, they, you know, like I said, I, I don't want to, don't want to mess up, you know, your, your nice little manger scene. We still call it a manger scene. You know, your nice little, uh, you know, scene at home there. Uh, but the, the, you know, the wise men, uh, it seems pretty clear they weren't there. If you read through Matthew chapter two, you know, again, later at home, you'll notice it says they found Joseph and Mary in a house. They found him in a house. And when they talk about the child there, they don't use they don't use the the uh, same word as is used for a newborn. They use one that's that's more for well, almost what we would call a toddler. You know, it can go up to that age. Some feel that Jesus could have been even two years old by the time the wise men showed up. I don't know, but what, what is clear is they weren't there. They weren't there, you know, in the stable. They weren't there on on the day of his birth, uh, or even. You know, even real shortly thereafter, most likely, um, as we are often thinking. Now, the point I want you to see here, though, in this passage about King Herod and the wise men is everybody had a choice who they were going to follow. King Herod had a choice who he was going to follow. The wise men had a choice. All of the shepherd, all of these people, they all had a choice of who they were going to follow. They had a choice of who they were going to listen to, who they were going to obey. Who you, you know, who you are listening to matters. It matters because what happens there, you know, it's, it's, when I say who you listen to matters, I'm not just talking about hearing. I'm talking about following. Think about this with, you know, with your kids or think about it when you were a kid, you know, when you listen to your parents, does that mean you heard them or does that mean you obey? We use that, you know, we use that. You can use it both ways, but we usually use it as as they obey. You didn't listen to me. We didn't mean you didn't hear me. What we meant is you didn't do what I had told you. So when I say who are you listening to, realize what I'm talking about here. You know, when, when we're looking at, you know, who are you listening to? Who is it that is motivating those actions who is it that is behind if you will those things who you know where is it that that that's all all coming from now notice you know first of all king herod consulted the chief priests and the scribes when the wise men came to him uh, he calls the chief priests and the scribes it seems there was no doubt in his mind you know because he wanted to know who this newborn king was and and they were in you know there was a time of anticipation so he calls the chief priests he calls the scribes and they told herod what god had said about the messiah so here herod had a choice to listen to what god said and embrace the messiah or to, to listen to something else and what instead what he did is he chose to listen you know he ignored what God said, not that he didn't hear it, because he called and he asked them, tell me, what is it he said? So he heard what they said, but he listened to his own plan. 
He implemented his own plan in opposition to God. He listened to his own desires. He listened to what he wanted. He listened to, you know, he listened to Herod. He didn't listen to what was there. Now, the wise men also had to decide who they were going to listen to. King Herod told the wise men, he said, you know, come back, come back and tell me when you find this guy so I can go and worship this new king. So I can go, you know, uh, that's what he says. He said he wanted to go worship. Actually, he wanted to kill this newborn king. That's what he wanted to do. He didn't want any rivals. He didn't want another there. And, but, but what he told them was, I want to worship them. He didn't want, he, he, you know, he didn't want anyone here who would be seen king besides him. And that was his plan. Now, he, they were told, come back. You know, and again, they didn't know of his plan. All they knew is what he said. He said, I want to go worship this, this king too. So come back. Please come back and tell me you know, where it is that you found him. Now, their other choice was to follow the dream. And it seems the dream came from God, directing them to return to their own land another way. We get hung up a lot of times with this dream stuff. We've touched on it a few times over the years. You know, and does God still direct through dreams? What you need to realize is God rarely directed through dreams in the first place. I mean, rarely. There's very few places in Scripture where he directed through dreams. There's a lot more places in Scripture where he directed through his word, through what he said. So let me encourage you, as opposed to looking for dreams for God to guide you, and I'm not saying he doesn't. What I am saying is it's rare. It's unusual. Instead of that, look at his word, which is what Herod should have done here, because God's word was clear, and he could have followed God's word, but instead he didn't. Well, it's, you know, the, the, the uh, wise men who came and really they came because you know the star this newborn king and so uh, you know they had the choice then they're going to follow herod or they're going to you know they're going to listen to herod or they're going to listen to this dream they had uh, who they're going to listen to and you know were they going to listen to man really or would they listen to god who you are listening to matters you need to understand that who you are listening to matters we're really not going to be in this passage uh, in Matthew, we're going to get back into First John, continue on First John. But we are going to be looking at, uh, you know, and, and get some insight and that we can realize who we're listening to. Let's pray, and we're going to turn to that in the First John. Father, thank you for your word and truth. I thank you that you have given it to us that we can listen to you, that we can that we can hear you, and you certainly can and have led through other ways. Uh, but most often in my life, you have led through your word and your truth. And I know for sure that any leading you give me is never going to be in opposition to your word. It's never be, going to be contradictory to your word. And I thank you for that. I thank you for the clarity. So as we look into your word this morning, teach us, uh, open our hearts and minds to you, that we would be people who would indeed uh, say that we are listening to you, meaning not just hearing you, but walking in obedience as well. Guide us toward that. More and more, I ask in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to be in 1 John chapter 2. So if you want to turn there, 1 John chapter 2, that's where we've been. And again, I just think it, it unveils, it unveils yeah, in a bit, you know, reveals, unveils the scripture, uh, uh, the Messiah a bit more to us, the reality of Christ and who he is. So 1 John chapter 2, we're going to pick up with verse 12. We went through verse 11 uh, last week. <coughs> and what we need to think about here is who we are listening to. 
You know, who we are listening to. Uh, you know, who is behind the information you're living by? Who is behind the information that you're making decisions from? I believe John addresses that subject in these verses. So pick up with me down at verse 12. John, 1 John. Now that's 1 John, you know, just before Revelation. So if you're in the Gospel of John, you're in the wrong place. Uh, 1 John is just, get the Revelation back up a few books. You'll be in 1 John there. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins have been forgiven because of Jesus' name. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have had victory over the evil one. I've written to you, children, because you have come to know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you have come to know the one who is from the beginning. I've written to you, young men, because you are strong. God's word remains in you, and you have had victory over the evil one. Let's pause there for a minute. This can get a little confusing. We look at this. Uh, children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. What in the world? Uh, is this meant to be one group? Is this supposed to be two groups? Is this supposed to be three groups? And we look at that. Uh, some feel that this indicates levels of spiritual maturity. And in other places in Scripture, you can see that. Or he's talking about about children, or he's talking about fathers, he's talking about young men. And some feel this is levels of maturity, and if that's the case, then it means that there's three groups here, children, fathers, and young men. Now, in other places, uh, in this letter in particular, John refers to all of the readers as children. John is probably 100 years old, close to 100 years old, maybe a little bit either side of it at this point. And, you know, the fact that he would refer to them as children wouldn't be unusual, and he does in other places here, uh, you know, which would mean then that there are two groups, because if children refers to everyone, then fathers and young men would be the two groups. When I look at this passage, though, and I look at what it says, one of the things that comes clear to me is that the blessings of each group are blessings that are available to all of those in Christ. Each group, some of the things he puts down for each group, those blessings that he mentions about them are available to all of those who are in Christ. So I guess I'm not sure it's meant to be different groups. I I think sometimes we force our ideas into it, and I'm not sure that that's what John was doing here, three groups, because we'll look at it, think about it. All Christians are like children Because through forgiveness, we're welcomed into the family of God. I mean, what he says there is all those who have a relationship with Christ Jesus, it says, are forgiven on account of his name. Should have went to bed earlier. They're forgiven on account of his name. And so all of those, all of those who have this relationship with Christ, we are children in the fact that we are forgiven on account of his name and become part of the family, you see. So that that it's you know to me seems to kind of it, it pertains to all of all of those who have a relationship with Christ that pertains to them. Now notice he says that we're forgiven on account of His name. You know, to their thinking, you know, to their thinking, this was more than simply knowing the name Jesus. And by the way, Christ isn't His last name. You know, we say Jesus Christ like it's His first and last name. It's that's that's not what it is. Christ wasn't his last name. His name, you know, he was Jesus and he was Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. You know, Jesus, Messiah. If you say it that way, then you'll lose the part of his last, you know, that thinking that's his last name. 
Uh, it, it's Jesus, and then they identify her, which Jesus? The Messiah Jesus, the Christ Jesus, the Savior. You know, that, that's what he's talking about here. So when they're talking about names, uh, you know, it, it, it's more than simply knowing the name Jesus. To them, name implies the whole character of being. It's the whole character of, of who they are. You know, we're not forgiven because we know that Joseph and Mary gave him the name Jesus in obedience to the message that he that, that they received from God. You know, they're, they're not we're not forgiven because of that. We're you know, we are forgiven because we know the character of God and we embrace him as savior. It, it gets a, into a deeper thing. It's not repeating that name like it's some magical incantation. And then all of a sudden, bingo, bango, you know, we, we, we got something. That's, that's not it. It's the character and person of Jesus that grants us forgiveness. It's the character and person of Jesus that makes us part of his family. Children, when we come to him. We're all, when we come to him, you know, we are children. And all Christians are like fathers. You know, they're like fathers because the knowledge of God has qualified. If you have a relationship with Christ, if you know him as Savior, if you've come to that place where you have that relationship with him, then, then you, you are qualified to be able to help others come into the family. But I don't know everything. You know, guess what? I don't know everything. Uh, Pastor Kent doesn't know everything. There isn't anybody in here who knows everything. You see, that would be God. And, and, but if you know enough to be saved, you know enough to share with other people. You know, and so we're like fathers. We're qualified to help others come into the family of God. We're qualified to be able to pass that information on to the next generation. The very best thing you can do for your kids, the very best thing you can do for your grandchildren, is to help them know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the very best thing you can do for them. You know, there is nothing else that goes beyond that. A couple weeks ago, Max and Molly were up and... um, so Max and Ryan and I, well, Mandy and Molly went, no, 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 Mandy and Ginny went uh, shopping, and Molly was over, I think they were at your house, weren't they? Yeah, she was over at, so I had, I had Max and Ryan, the two of them, and, um, okay, we always talk about, you know, that dad's babysit, you don't babysit your own kids, they're your kids, you know, for pity's sake suck it up and be a dad but anyway um so i have these two little guys and what are we going to do all day well they like to be entertained well one of the things we ended up doing uh we went to the park and while we're at the park and they wanted me to chase them and yeah i wasn't into it a little bit i did but you know so i thought well i'll go to lowe's they have these little kits pre-cut wood we can build something. I'll let them pick out whatever it is they want to build. So we went to Lowe's and we picked out these little kits of stuff to build. And while we were there, Ryan and I have done these projects before and some of the other kids. But Ryan always wants me to buy him a hammer. Well, he's already got a couple of them. And I said, I'm not buying you a hammer when we get there this time. So we get there. They pick out the little thing. And I walk around the corner and there's this little toolbox. A kid's toolbox. Well, it has the hammer in there uh, and, and a few other things. And I thought, hmm, there were blue ones and there were pink ones. Now, you can be sexist if you want to. I bought them the blue ones. Uh, you know, so, uh, we, so I got them these toolboxes. 
They wanted to build stuff. And, you know, Max wants to build what all of my grandchildren have wanted me to build so far. Let's build a robot. Doesn't quite work that way. Uh, well, so we built these projects. Well, then they, they both went home with their tools and they're building other things at home. And Ryan then on Sunday brings his toolbox back, you know, so he could build something else with me. And then, uh, you know, they, they, Max and Molly came in this weekend and Max says, I'm bringing my toolbox, Papa. You know, they want to build stuff. And this is fun. You know, I like to build stuff. And so we, when, you know, we were out in the garage, you know, and, and building different things. And, you know, there's wood. And to them, you know, I can build anything out of wood. Oh, and the reality is that ain't going to happen. But um, I, I, I just think there's so much fun out there, in there. And I thought, man, what a neat thing to be able to pass this on to. You know what? If they don't know Jesus Christ... I need to spend more time helping them to know Jesus Christ than I do these other projects. It's not that the, it's not that doing these other and understand this. It's not that the, doing the other things is unimportant. It's not. It is important, but it pales in comparison to helping them know Jesus. And so when you think of fathers, you know, your most important role. And by the way, he's using these terms. He's not using these terms as male, female. He's using these terms as he's describing the people. When he talks about children, he's talking about the men and the women. You know, he's talking about fathers and young men. He's really talking about, he's talking about all of the adults there is what he's talking about. You know, that reality of passing on who Christ is. And we have that privilege. We have that opportunity. We have that responsibility, you know, to pass that on to the next generation. He says that, you know, we have come to know him, not simply in an intellectual way, you know, not not in a way a philosopher or an academic knows him. What he's talking about here is the way we've come to know him is a man knows a friend. And the more... You know, you know a friend by spending time interacting with them. And the more time you interact with them, the more you will get to know them. I've told you before, when, uh, when Ginny and I were dating, and I, you know, and I would spend the day with her, and I would drive home, this is before cell phones, you know, I'd drive home and I'd pick up this thing on the wall that was attached to a cord, and a, and a line ran out, and it went up to these poles and all the way over to her house, so it's called a telephone, an old one. But, so I'd get home, and I'd pick up the phone, and I'd call her. My goodness, my mom, you know, my mom says, you, you know, you just leave, and you come home, and you're calling her. She was just making an observation, um, and... Because that time you spent interacting, you see, that's how you get to know someone. So when he's talking here, when he's talking here that we have come to know him, it, he's, that's what he's speaking about. Come to know someone as a friend. You know, it, it's not that we have more theological facts, but that we come to know him more intimately as a friend. You know, that we have come to know the one who is from the beginning. And Christians are, are all like young men also because their rejection of the evil one, he says here. It's a victory like Jesus had when he was tempted. Uh, you know, now notice it doesn't say we conquer evil as a concept. It says we conquer the evil one as an adversary, as one who is out to destroy us, as one who is out to destroy our faith, as one who is... He doesn't have to understand this too. The enemy doesn't have to destroy you. All he has to do is discourage you. All he has to do is discourage you. Because when you're discouraged, your attention is on yourself. 
And when you're discouraged, then you're less likely to tell other people about Christ. When you're discouraged, you're less likely to, to interact with other people. When you're discouraged, you're even less likely to, you know, to get into the Scripture more. So he doesn't have to defeat you. All he has to do is discourage you. But what it says here, what, you know, what it says here is that you have, you have victory over the evil one. John has been pointing out the difference between light and darkness and emphasizing the importance of God to God's people of living in the light where God is, uh, you know, and a very good, uh, a very good defense against walking in the darkness is to remember what we are and what has been done for us in Christ. You know, we need to know, we need to remember who we are and whose we are. We need to remember who we are in Christ and whose we are. It's extremely important that remember, we remember what we are in Christ. We are forgiven. We are children. We are part of God's family. You know, and, and what we've been given in Christ, we've been given that relationship. We've been given that, that new start. We've been given that opportunity, as, as we saw in the first chapter, that opportunity that when we mess up, we can go to him. And he's faithful. He's just, he will cleanse us. He will, he will, he forgives. He cleanses us. We have that opportunity, you know, to be forgiven over and over. It, it, it seems clear what he's trying to do here in this passage is assure them, you know, that he feels they all have a relationship with Christ. That's who he's writing to, those who know Christ. And he points out, you know, that we are in a spiritual battle against the evil one. Don't forget that. Don't forget we are in a spiritual battle against the evil one. Don't minimize that. You know, don't minimize that, but also don't be intimidated by that. Don't be intimidated by that because we are part of his family. No, it says that we get strength. You know, we get strength from the word of God abiding, dwelling, living, remaining in us. That, that God's word remains in you. You're strong because God's word remains in you. That abiding, dwelling, living, remaining. It's more than a fleeting pass through. You know, it's more than just, you know, it, 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 it's more than, well, you know, I read those three verses I need to today. On with the day, you know, and then we ignore God. That, that's not what it is. It, it's, you know, we're victorious as we apply and live out the word of God in our everyday living. That when we see the word of God, then we begin to, then we begin to live by it. That when we, when we, when we see something that goes against the word of God and we know then that that's not for us and that's not where we should be. Who you're listening to matters. Know, you know, know who you are in Christ and then live like you are in Christ. Live like you are in Christ. Know who you are in him and then live like it. Live like you have a relationship with Christ. Verse 15. Let's pick up with there. Verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or the things that belong to the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. For everything that belongs to the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride in one's lifestyle, is not from the Father, but from the world. And the world with its lusts is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. Well, here's, you know, look at this. Do not love the world. Wait a second. I thought God so loved the world. Okay, you need to understand world's used in a couple different ways in Scripture. When it says God so loved the world, he's talking about, you know, all of, all of creation, all of humanity, all that there is. That God, you know, that there, is, there isn't anyone out there that God doesn't love, that God isn't willing to help that God isn't isn't wanting to come to salvation there you know that all of his people but then there is also and John uses it quite often this way you know when it talks about when it talks about the world 
You know, what he's talking about here is a human system that excludes God, that leaves God out. But it's more than that. They're also actively opposed to God. They are actively opposed to him. They are actively opposed to his purposes. They are actively opposed to his values. It, it is society that is organized on wrong principles. It's organized on those that come and fly directly, intentionally into the face of God. And you say, well, I don't do that. But, you know, the world doesn't do that. We have an enemy, the evil one. And you better believe that he is behind some of the values that we see portrayed as acceptable. When they go into the, and, and fly into the face of God, where do you think they're coming from? Where, you know, where is it that you think they're coming from? Everyone has two choices. We love the world or we love God. You know, we serve the world or we serve God. We follow the world or we follow God. There is no neutral area. There is no waiting area. You are for him or you are against him. You are with God or you are against God. Well, you know, what about that? You know, this person, they seem real nice and stuff. If they don't know Christ, you know, Scripture is pretty clear on that. Matthew chapter 6, he says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. You see, there's... Who are you listening to? Who is it you're following? What is it that's putting those values in? Don't give the world first place in your values, your priorities, and your actions. Again, remember, when I'm talking about the world, I'm talking about those things that are opposed to God. I'm talking about those things that are opposed to God. Do not give those things that are opposed to God. Do not give them first place in your values. Do not give them first place in your priorities. Do not give them first place in your actions. As those with a relationship with God, we are told to avoid, to avoid infatuation, you know, with worldly godlessness. We need to avoid that. A connection with the world that directs your living is incompatible with a relationship with God. But God is the one who is to direct our living. And if it's the world, that system that is opposed to God, if that's what is directing your living, that is incompatible with God's people. There can only be one first place in your life. There is only one first place in your life. Give it to God. That's the call of the first commandment, really. The first commandment is not to have any, any other gods besides God. It's not that he is to be the first among many. He is to be exclusively first. He is to be the only God in your life. Not just first in line, but the only one there. Now, this, this doesn't mean that nothing in the world is important to you. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean you don't value anything in this world. We are called to be stewards. We are called to care about people. We are called to love people. So this doesn't mean, you know, that we just ignore all this other stuff. It's that the important things, the important things in this world, you know, and the things you value, they should not control you. They should not be what is calling the shots in your life. They should not direct you. You know, if you have a relationship with God, you know, then he is the one that sets those parameters. He is the one that sets those guys. He is the one who sets the parameters in all you do. He's the one that sets the parameters in all you are as a person. That what you are as a person is not dictated by this 
other person you want to impress or by this group you want to be a part of. It's not dictated by that. It's directed by God. It's directed by God and and what, what he wants and what he wants in, in our life. The world, that system which excludes God, you know, and actively opposes God, is most obviously marked by three characteristics that they have laid out there. And we battle, we battle these, we battle these areas when we have a relationship with God. He talks about the, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the flesh, you know, that's those passions, those, those drives, the, the seeking pleasure. It's drawn and motivated by what we feel. Sometimes when we see this, the lust of the flesh, we think of it in a, in a sexual manner. And, and, it, and it is certainly that, but it's it's not only that, but also I watch some of these commercials. We use sex to sell everything in this country. They say, well, what do you mean? Well, what does what does, you know, a, a scantily clad woman have to do with buying a hamburger at rallies? I'm just wondering. Was she the butcher? Or the baker? What, you know, what does that... There's a commercial on now. And how does it go? Oh. There's this elderly couple sitting there. And they say, we do it every night. You know, and then you got all these other people. We do it every night. They're talking about running their dishwasher. So if you think that, you know, the lust of the flesh, you know, it, 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 it does, certainly includes sex and the sexual temptations. And they're out there. Don't be, a, don't be a fool about it. You know, don't think you can dabble in this stuff and that it's going to be okay. Don't think you can do that. Because you dabble in any of this and you, you are asking for trouble. You're going to get sucked in and you're going to get blown apart and destroyed before you even, before you even realize it. You know, it says flee. Scripture says to flee youthful lust. When you see it. Men, understand this. You are going to, you are in your life sometime, even if you're married, even if you're happily married, you will in your lifetime, you will run across another woman that you'll be talking and you'll think, all of a sudden it'll hit you. Boy, we could, we could really get along. Not that you're looking, you know, to, to sleep with her or anything at that point. You see, here's the problem. When we, don't, when we don't honestly admit to ourselves that, hey, there could be a connection here, and, and then what we do is we begin to, you know, build our ego up by flirting and stuff. Now, let me tell you, women, you will also run across a man who is not your husband. That when you're talking to him sometime and you will realize we could really click. Don't be so foolish as to continue to feed that. Don't be so foolish as to ignore that. Don't, you, 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 just be careful. When he's talking about, you know, the lust of the flesh, motivated by what we feel. But he also talks about the lust of the eyes, drawn, motivated by what we see. You know, motivated, motivated by what we see. I mean, uh, man. How many times, you know, has that happened? And again, is this, this could be in regards to people. This can be regards to, you know, uh, I have a hard time in a tool section. I just do. 
I see these tools and I'd really like them. I'd like to have more of them or books. Go into a bookstore. I got stacks of books I haven't read yet that I'm waiting to read. But I also know I'm not the only one. So do many of you. You know. And I have some tools I haven't used yet. Good Friday, I picked up a few more tools. I did. I did. I, I saw these things. I thought, I, I could use that. You know, uh, one of it was just a set of, a, a set of just extensions, you know, uh, for, from quarter inch all the way up to half inch drive wrenches. Some of that means nothing to some of you, but, you know, and the universals. Because I lost the universal for my, for my uh, three-eighths drive, so, of course, I had to buy the set that had the three-eighths quarter inch and half inch in there. Uh, See, so when we're talking, you know, you know, when we're talking here about lust of the eyes, it's, it's, you know, it, it certainly can be in regards to other people, but it doesn't have to be. You need to understand it. It doesn't have to be. And he talks about the pride of one's life, you know, seeking self-worth, you know, that, that in, in things or, you know, the approval of others. It's, that's what it is. It's drawn and motivated by approval. And sometimes, sometimes the, the approval isn't from others. Sometimes we're drawn by our own wanting to have our own approval. That's part of the, well, if I only had this, then I'd be happy. You know, and be careful, you know, be, be, be careful of these things. You know, be, an unholy pride, you know, an unholy pride in what you have, whether it's possessions, position, approval, status, be careful. Who you are listening to matters. These are the same areas that Satan appealed to when he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden. With the lust of the flesh, he said, did God, did God really say this? You know, don't you feel that perhaps you may have misunderstood him? You know, this, what, what do you really, you know, what is it do you really have a desire for, Eve? You know, the lust of the eyes. It says, then the woman saw the fruit and saw that it was good for food. And delightful to look at. Really, this is why we have so. This is one of the one of the drives that gives us so many different styles of cars. A car is just a practical thing. I mean, it really is. It'd be a nice thing. It's nice to be able to drive places and not have to walk. When we went and picked up Max and Molly yesterday, you know, I couldn't have done it in a time. I'd still be walking. You know, uh, when we went to uh, the Fantasy of Lights yesterday, I could have walked. Instead of sitting in line for an hour and a half on Sherman Boulevard waiting for you know traffic in front of me, but it's the, the car is just a very practical thing. I mean, it is. Henry Ford said you can have uh, the Model T in any color you want, as long as it's black. Well, that's true. But then it's like, well, I don't want black. This is black. I'm going to have mine red. You know. I, but really, I mean, what is, what, is, what is all that appealing to? You know, it's just the lust of the eyes there. And it says the pride in one's life. And, you know, in Genesis, he says, when you eat this, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's holding back on you. You see, God's holding back on you. Be all you can be. Be all you can. The pride in one's life. And then what did they do? They followed the, those temptations. Instead of following God, they followed the temptations. And it says, so she took some of the fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. There's the embarrassing part. Her husband who was with her and kept his mouth shut. 
instead of protecting his wife. Instead of stepping up and being the leader that God intended him to be. And he kept silent. Who you are listening to matters. These are the same areas where Satan appealed to Jesus when he was, when he was the lust of the flesh. He said, you know, tell these stones to become bread. You must, you, you've got to be famished. You know, 40, you haven't eaten 40 days. Tell these stones to become bread. You know, just, just, just do that. The lust of the eyes. It says the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. Look at all of this, it says. Look at all of this that you can have. You know, just, take, just take a gander in, in the pride of one's life. He says, I'll give it all to you if you fall down and worship me. You can be the ruler over all these things. You, you can be the ruler over all of these things. Now, the difference is each time, each time Jesus responded, He responded with God's word. He responded by putting God first. He responded by putting God ahead of the worldly things. Who you listen to matters. Who you are listening to matters. Jesus listened to the Father. He listened to the word of God. And so he did not sin. He did not give in to the temptation. I think what John has in mind here is any sinful interest. Anything that draws us away from God. I think this is what he's talking about. Anything that makes continuing in fellowship with God an impossibility. Anything that, know that those things are not from God. If it's drawing you away from God, knowing they're not from him. There's a marked difference between what comes from the world, that system opposed to God, a marked difference in what comes to, you know, to that which is opposed to God and that which comes from the word of God. And you see the difference. You want to see the difference. Look at verse 17. It says, And the world with its lust is passing away, but the one who does God's will remains forever. So who you are listening to matters. Choose what comes from God. Choose what comes from God. What comes from the world and its lust, those value systems, it ignores God. It elevates It elevates the lust of the flesh. It elevates the lust of the eyes. It elevates the pride of life. It elevates the pride of you know, a lifestyle anchored to pride. All of those that are, and all the things that are motivated by that, notice what it says, is passing away. Actively. It is in the process of. It is consistently consistently insufficient for life. All those things are consistently insufficient for life. Who you are listening to matters. Life comes as a result of listening to God, meaning that we are following God's will. You know, that we're following his will. And it says, and that remains forever. And that's a long time. Who you are listening to matters because who you are listening to directs your living. Choose what comes from God. Follow him. Follow his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and truth. Thank you for the grace that you give to us. And not that we deserve. That's why it's grace. You're giving us what we don't deserve. You are giving us more than we could ever hope for, more than we could ever even have any type of right to claim. We have no claim on any of this. It's given to us as a gift from you, and I thank you for that. Help us to understand and follow your word, to grasp it, to let it guide us. Uh, the, the world wants to drag us away, Father, wants us to 
wander from you. Lord, I pray for each and every one here. No matter what their age, Lord, they all face temptations. There is a part of the world that just seems to want to grab at each one of us. Don't let us give in to that. Help us to always follow you, Lord. I thank you for the things in the world, but it, that is, it, what you have created is great. It is marvelous. And even what you have allowed man to do in many ways is a marvelous thing. But, Father, help us to always keep them in their place, which is behind you, which is not in, re, in, in place of you. So, Father, drive us. Drive us to you. More and more, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.